Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. I've been reading a little thing about, I'm going to read it to you, about yeah. from Mr. Kirkland Sicconi. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Is, Is that it, like like Madonna's real name? Yes, yes. So how would you pronounce that? I don't know, isn't it? Like, Sicconi, I don't know. So it's Ciccone. Italian, right, yeah. Sicconi, I don't know. I have, I have, a, I have a, a little um, soundbite that tells us how to pronounce Kirkland's last name. So I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to play it for us as well. So we got it here. Chicone. Chicone. Yeah, two C's are pronounced K in Italian. Yeah, Chicane, Chicane. Yeah. Okay, he's, so, he's an Italian Scotsman. And and he, then, what a combination. What a combination, yes. That's a tricky uh, one. That's a tricky one at closing time, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yes. He's, he's written, some, he's written uh, a book or two. And okay. he wrote this article about the, the slits, and I thought a, a couple of quotes from there, and I, I, I want your impressions, because it did bring it kind of in more perspective to me. He said, Everything I learned about London came from an album called Cut by a band named The Slits. For me, London birthed punk, the real punk. It reshaped the lexicon of pop culture. For a while, there was an attraction to that city so cute that my real happiness could only come my way if I went there and breathed its air, heard its noise, and felt its fear. The London I wanted to see was the one that the slits told me all about. So, I'm wondering, is was that kind of your experience of London coming down from uh, St Helens, and was it was it informed by the slits' viewpoint? Because they were probably some of the first people that you met, right? I uh, let's see, because I, I went down from Liverpool, yeah. so I'd left my hometown. I was with my first band, the Spitfire Boys, right. and the London, yeah, the London I met. Apart from the first, like we went down to record, like uh, the Spitfire Boys, one and only recording, right? Um, but we we met up with the Slits. I think Paul, Paul was the key. Paul Rutherford. Right. who later was in Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Right. I think what had happened was the Slits were on tour and they had nowhere to stay when they got to Liverpool. And so they, they'd Paul had probably either met them or reached out to them and said, you can come stay at my place, come stay at my mum's. So we <laughs> okay. had Slits yeah. staying with his mum out in like Cantrell Farm Estate somewhere, wherever it is. Wow. Uh, yeah, and uh, the, you know, with their little bus outside, and so they became best of friends. Right, and so I think that could have been before Paul was a singer in Spitfire Boys. Right, right. Therefore, when we went down to London, Paul had probably said we should go and like meet, you know, right, Barbara. There was like a, there was like a, um, a house where we stayed where I met Steve Strange. Okay, who was also staying there. Right. He was. That was like meeting like the artful dodger. <laughs> so 
This this might give you an idea of the London I met. Right. Uh, Steve, Steve Strange was pretty much, I think, a local kind of. It was known locally. Yes. Around the scene. Yeah. But he certainly he, he certainly wasn't a singer. He didn't have uh, the makeup. He had bright socks on. You know, everybody had brothel creepers and right. bright dayglow right. socks. Yeah. And Steve said to me, I said, I like your socks. He said, I'll show you where to get them from. And Steve, like, put me under his uh, wing or yes. uh, arm and uh, took me down the King's Road and showed me around where Boy was and the, the, the market uh, down okay. there and, and Lloyd Johnson's place. And I, I had no money. I had no money at all. I don't think he did. So that's how we ate because somebody had to show you how to got to pick a pocket or two, but it oh, was really right. kind of going in a supermarket and slipping something in your pocket, ah, paying right. for the, yeah. the cheapest thing whilst everybody else is filling up. Because you were starving is, little punkies, right? You yeah, was, yeah, which is very much described in Shoplifting, which is ah. one of the tracks on the album. Right, right. The album being cut, the band yes. being the slits. We stayed with, uh, the Spitfires stayed with Barbara, and Barbara was running a house for a single parent, uh, for mothers with a child, with a right. single parent fa- family house. And uh, she drove the Sex Pistols around. Right. That's what uh, her gig was. <laughs> that, was a, that was a day, no, a day job was the, the house. Yeah. And so we, we kind of landed on a kind of outer, outer circle of the inner circle of punk, if you like. Right. Um, and then we would sometimes go down to Ari's mum's house just behind the King's Road right. in, um, in Chelsea. Yeah. Nora. Nora's being house, right. Nora Forster, yeah, and, and Ariana. Uh, and, and, of course, John Rotten, John Lydon, was already kind of, I think, uh, either had got a candle lit for Nora or right. was definitely wanting to... Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I really don't. I, I imagine there could have well been an item already. Okay. So everything was um, all, all sort of falling into place around that sort of nexus. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Kirkland's article, he also has the uh, a link to the, the video for Typical Girls. And you're in that. And Typical Girls was the probably, let's see, because Typical Girls is the first song that, I now did. I, it was not a song I remember from because I'd seen the Slits play live. Right, right. You know, I'd, I'd gone to watch them at various places like the Fulham Greyhound or uh-huh. the Cam- Camden Music Machine. Yeah. And I don't recall Typical Girls being in the set. And right. none of the songs that ended up on cut sounded like the, the versions that they played live with Palmolive, who right. was, was the co writer of a lot of the lyrics, right. and uh, along with Viv, who. Okay. Was the other the other main lyric writer, and perhaps mostly, mm. the imagery on cut is probably Viv's world, Viv's London world. And isn't it interesting that you know, fast forward, you know, forty years, and she's a writer. So she's yeah, writer. it's it, it's it's very interesting. I I like to draw all the, the you know the 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 connections here. So Palmolive was still a drummer when you first saw them, and so yeah. When Palmolive, did she left or did was she asked to leave or what happened? Do you know? Well, I wasn't party to it, of course. I, okay. I just I just heard they needed somebody. To, they were being managed by the same manager that I'd 
been again I was taken under several wings as I you know Clive Langer from Deaf School Luck okay. was, uh, he kind of introduced me to Glenn Matlock mm-hmm. he introduced me to somebody who could like give me a day job so I could get a bit of money right but mostly he introduced me to his manager who was the manager of Deaf School uh-huh. uh, Frank Silver right and Frank basically took me on he used to bung me 25 quid a week and if I was lucky yeah. and it, and it, that's how I survived really and I, th- I imagine we didn't make a lot of money out of the Slits album I don't right. know I, I, but was it the first was it the first sort of major recording that you had done it was the f- I think it was the first major label yeah it was right. Island Records it was like right. wow you know I yes mean, you're in from the sticks I am it's it's your first major label project, right? And it's maybe attractive to you because you know it's like something real to do. And also, it's got Dennis Bovell, who is going to be the producer. And mm-hmm. you know, there's reggae involved, which you like, an island. And I'll read you what Kirkland says about all this. Hmm. He said, "What I hadn't known." was that the album was punk. But not in the way I understood it at the time. What the fuck, I screamed. This is reggae. Yes, it was. But that was punk too. For the Slits successfully took all those sounds and made them into punk, the real definition of the word before it became mohawks and pins. The producer of the album was Dennis Bovell, a genius who made skeletal-sounding dubby music sound enormous in your headphones. The songs on Cut do not sound like anything from any other punk bands in the, on the scene in punk. The Slits stuck apart. Bovell's production allowed the Slits an opportunity to find gaps they could fit into, hold spaces to craft sounds uniquely their own. It's a, a, good, a, a good appraisal of, of Dennis's, Dennis work, Dennis's work. He was... Um, I didn't meet him until we got to Ridge Farm Studios outside of London. Is that where you recorded um, Cut out there? Yep, Ridge okay. Farm. There's a re- little residential studio. It's where the, 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 the photographs were taken. Yes, we're coming to the photographs. I'm getting, I'm okay, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> but really, it was, um, for me, the, the big, the key thing was um, the slits had signed to Ireland uh, and so the meeting place was um, Chiswick, St. Peter's Square, the headquarters of Island Records. It was a big kind of uh, Chiswick's a place of like larger houses that are set yes. back in their own little gardens. South of um, the river. Yeah. South of the river, yes, yes, yes. Well, it was also, it would be the first port of call for musicians arriving to, from Jamaica uh-huh. who were coming in to work either pick, as pickup, you know, either singers or musicians who were coming to work with people in London. It was a very close-knit Jamaican scene there. Right. But let's go back to the, the beginnings of that album. Yeah. I went down to uh, Ariana's mum's house. Yeah. And Ariana opened the door. Yeah. She was wearing a pair of knickers and a T-shirt. Right. She was about 16 or 17. And she sort of giggled at me. And I went, I probably probably giggled back because I was, you know, it was like, right. this is all, this is all a bit strange, but it was all very, very, you know, bright and nothing, nothing clandestine about it. It was, uh, and she basically, Ari brought me in, 
took her into the into the house, which is a very nice house, and introduced me to her record collection. Okay, what was she listening to? Uh, lots of soul, Marvin Gaye, Tamla Motown, and no punk. There was not on a, you know, um, I think the Bee Gees might have been on there. Um, <laughs> Saturday Night Fever had just yeah. come out, and she was like 16. She was into that. Right. Yeah, because it had production, and she wanted production. And the band wanted to sound like a well-produced, they wanted to make a really well-produced record. They didn't want to make a cheap kind of quick punky record right. for Chiswick Records right. around the corner, you know, around yeah. the corner from Ireland probably. Right. Um, so they were not like a polished band that a polished label would want to sign. Right. And, and, and they were almost, they'd done a couple of appeal sessions. I know right. that. And they were, they were chaos live. Right. Uh, they were lucky if they could keep a song going right. for the duration of the song. Uh, Paul Olive ferocious drummer um but terrible uh trouble keeping a beat going right <laughs> for for three minutes isn't it, isn't it strange isn't it strange that most of the 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 people who make unique and uh groundbreaking items generally see themselves as completely opposite to what how the public ends up perceiving them you know viv i remember meeting viv you know, a long time after the album had become like a cult classic. Right. Um, and she was probably working for a production company for Channel 4 TV in, in uh -huh. London. And there was, there was a new club open, one of those London clubs. Yes. And people were invited. And so I met Viv and said, I, you know, wow, isn't it great? All these years and the album is like still like lauded as like an, a, you know, a, a really influential right. record. And she went, really? I said, yeah, isn't it? And she went, as if, as if like it, it had so much not a part of her world. Yeah. That, um, yeah, I think she, that's a very oh, interesting you know, thing that, that a, lot of, a lot of things that make uh, a lot of other people very interested and, and, you know, stimulated by it usually are on the periphery of what a, a lot of other, you know, a lot of artists are doing. It's like, really, that's the bit you like about me. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not about self-awareness or anything. It's just about you have a skill that you've almost sidelined and that's what people like. And it's a very strange phenomenon. It might be even looking now, if because to kind of look at it in a kind of um, a chronological way, because that's how I've always spoken about it. Mm. But but in a way, I can look at it now and and say, why did I sit down at Ridge Farm Studios in the, in the glorious sunshine with Viv, who I admired and had a great fondness for her, and you know that she we'd just been through, and I checked my diary. It's like four weeks of real uh, the, the roller coaster of emotions and she says in her book how it reduced her to tears of anger and frustration right and delight right because they they really had to make those performances ariana ariana was able to just roll out a piano flourish or a kind of two and a half octave range in her voice and 
Viv had all the ideas, but was still kind of really having to struggle with, to find the right technique to get these parts right. Right. And I suppose in a way it was quite exhausting. And, and I, I wasn't sure if I, I just wasn't sure how this would continue. And as I say, I didn't leave to go anywhere. It was just, it felt like we'd achieved so much. And I think it was just exhaustion, really. Just, had, you know, we need maybe need a break. I need a break from you. But then it never, I never went back because I joined another band. Right. <laughs> which I, <laughs> which changed my life again. I'm reading an article uh, mm. that was in uh, an English newspaper. Yeah. A few years back. And uh, it's it's Viv talking about the making of the album. And, and she describes several of the things that you're talking about. I'll read you this bit. It says, So in the spring of 79, we were dispatched to Ridge Farm in Surrey. Dennis was trapped with all these girls. He and Harry were very strict. I'd only been playing for 18 months and was with these control freaks. I often went to bed in tears, wondering what humiliation waited for me the next day. What weaknesses would be revealed in my playing? When I was playing Newtown, they kept saying, you're not getting it. By the end, I was so furious, I just thrashed at the guitar and made strange noises. Over the intercom came, that was fantastic. So it's like, you know, it's like it goes to that thing about, you know, what is your real strength and who are you, you know? And mm. uh, very, I think that makes a lot of really good records because a lot of really good records, they come out of that that intersection of passion and energy and creation and so they're they're wow. not contrived at all they but they have that magic in it and if it translates into the grooves people you know they react to it should i read you an interesting fact okay please do i'm holding in my hand oh my goodness it's budgie's diary he's got his diary from 1979 in his hand it's called the London Diary, nineteen seventy-nine. Do you remember these with a the little pencil? I do. Put them in the top. I do. Mine was very boring. Mine just said, uh, "Get up, go to school, go to See, church, go to school." You got scouts. a map of central London. You oh, got wow. the the tube, the underground. Okay, here we go. It's April the first. Yeah. It's a Sunday. Uh, we'd met the day before at St Peter's Square, thirty-first of March, and we were leaving for Surrey. So that, that April the first, April Fool's Day. Mm. is also Passion Sunday. Right. Ooh. You just mentioned passion. Blimey. I got a, a chill up my spine then. I'm thinking about it, how we've, we've lodged into this. Wow. I know. We just, uh, we, prior to that, right up until the day before we left Friday the 30th, we did a five days rehearsal. That wasn't the only rehearsal we did, but it was five days rehearsal. In the mid, middle midst of which was a new moon. Right. And by the fourth day, we were into the first quarter of the new moon. Mm. And uh, we went all the way through. Consults is, uh, you can hear me just turn the pages of this old. We're almost around to the next new moon by the time we finished. It was right the way through Easter. We may have taken Easter Day and the bank holiday off. Mm. We got to the last quarter and that was coming towards the end of the session. It was basically a four-week session. From April the 1st through till uh, April 23rd. So, yeah, that's three weeks, actually. Three yeah. calendar weeks. That's, that's, that's pretty intensive uh, time. I mean, that's a lot longer 
than we had for the first two albums, I think, of The of the Cure. So it's good. I'm going to read you the next bit from this because uh, this article in The uh, Guardian, okay. because it, it, it really, it sums up a bit of what you were saying as well. It said, mm. Dennis corralled us into shape and tied up all the ends, but without trampling on creativity. This is uh, Viv speaking. It was so rare for a man in the 1970s to put himself inside the heads and hearts of four crazy young women. Budgie also helped pull it all together. Ari was very communicative about how things should sound, and Budgie could take that from a girl who was 17. He had a feminine sensibility. They were extraordinary, they were extraordinary men to come across. Ari in her German-Jamaican accent, would tell them exactly what she wanted from the hi-hat. She had detail in mind, always an eye for detail. Um, the thing about Ari, the thing that I, I got straight away from that first meeting that night when we went around to her mum's house and she showed me a, played me a record collection, was as she was playing the records, the music, she started to do this thing. She wasn't dancing because she was moving around and skipping around and dancing. Right. But she sat on a chair and she rocked. Wow. She rocked backwards and forwards like a pendulum into the back of the chair. Okay. All the weight going into the into the backward movement. I'm doing it now. <laughs> and that's what I used to do the same thing at home on a Saturday night when I was listening to my records. Ooh. I'd swing. I'd, I'd pound the chair to the beat. Yeah. And Harry did it. And the moment she started, I went, oh, my God, somebody else does that. Yeah. So you had a connection I, straight away there then? Absolutely. Yeah. It was a total connection. It was just, it, she smiled. I remember her smiling and I remember reciprocating that smile because it was like a smile of, I know what you're doing. I know exactly what it is. This is the beat. This is how the music moves you. And it was a, a passionate, a, a passion right. for music. A, a passion for beat, a passion for the the in the the, the the deeper current of music it wasn't to do right. with style no it wasn't to do with what was fashionable right. it was to do with a deeper pulse well, so what a, what you you channel what you could get together through it that's what made yeah. it i mean it's still today I, i've been listening to it again. still very unusual record and really unusual for the time you know yeah. So, so it's got a lot of. Uh... Viv, I think, I think Viv had the hardest job in many ways. Yeah. Apart from when Tessa was asked to sing one of Palmolive's lyrics, right. she had to sing "Adventures Close to Home" because Palmolive had wanted her to. Oh, okay. And Tessa and Palmolive, I think, used to share a flat together. Okay. And Ari might have, she could have made it up that Palmolive said, "No, you've got to sing. No, you've got to sing it." Okay. Tessa. Yes. Tessa, you got to sing it, Tessa. <laughs> and Tessa was just so laid back. You know, she was not a lady of many words. Right. And so I think it was from Tessa where I really felt the bass to be this, you know, an instrument of a deeper, a, a deep, something that came from a deep part of the inner right. body. And know. something also to ground the, 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 the eccentricity you know, and the the craziness of what else is going on. You know, we would just play. We just play grooves. Right. If you think of uh, Newtown, mm. it's just we set up a beat, boom, 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 and it's uh, hypnotic. And then that's where Viv had to really be inventive and mm. and find the gaps. 
and not just play the chord shapes. So yeah. It, it was invention all the time, and that really is demanding and tiring and uh, creatively exhausting. Mm. Um, and we ate well. <laughs> Good. They had on-site catering at Ridge Farm okay. Studios, you know. Always and, good. And it was a it was a country farmhouse, yeah. and there was a big table, and there was food. It was fantastic. Yeah, sounds good. That's going to make people, you know, young people, feel better. Yeah. We we had we had no money to be eating. Right. Like, certainly, we didn't we didn't cook. No. I didn't cook. No. I didn't go out to restaurants. No. I was lucky if I got like you know those kind of Camden Town greasy breakfasts. Oh right, the greasy spoon. Yes. Yeah, yeah. that's that was what I looked forward to: sausage, yeah. eggs, bacon. Right. You know, I wasn't even vegetarian then, right. and it was just gre- and baked beans, baked beans, two slices of toast, and a cup of tea, right. or fried bread. Fried bread. You have to have fried bread. As Never well. had fried bread. I was a two oh, slices okay. of toast man. Okay. You know. So I suppose the other thing because I'll I'll read you something else from Dennis. From Dennis Wright. He said, uh, Chris Blackwell from Island Records told me, I've signed this group and I don't know what to do with them. It's a girl group, a punk band. He gave me some cassettes of them live and I thought, yeah, they certainly can play and I agreed to do the album. We were in the studio for 10 weeks and it was solid work. The band had clear ideas about what they wanted. Ari, Tessa and Viv had written songs. They just needed me to shape them. Worked from nine in the morning to late. I'd tell them, off you go to bed so I could fix things. And Ari would say, no, I'm not going to bed. She would always insist on being there if I was doing anything to the music. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's like that dichotomy, you know, like this wild person that people probably looked at, you know, some other more adult people looked at and thought, well, you know, what is that going on there? But actually she was very committed to what she was doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you say he said ten weeks in the studio? Uh, yeah, we were in the studio for ten weeks. That's what he said. I don't know. No, the reason is we cut. We cut all the tracks. Yeah, we cut the tracks for cut. Yeah, all the drums, bass, guitars, most of the vocals, probably piano. Right. A lot of that was done. A lot of the vocals probably came in the next session. Oh, I right. left on the twenty fourth. Okay, and I didn't play these songs after. Mm. At all with with the, with with the slits because Bruce did okay because Bruce came down I think for the during he, the only thing he put on the album was a a little vocal part right um, but I think that I remember just one more mix is like a cartoon on the inner sleeve of uh, a cut and like engineers walking around with their arms outstretched sleepwalking Mm-mm-mm. it. They took a long time laying over all those percussion overdubs and little bits of this, and they uh, also took a lot of time getting the mixes the way right. they wanted them. So, so four weeks for the basic recording? Yeah. Sounds like six weeks for mixing. Right, absolutely. Well, it sounds good. I mean, still, I mean, I listened to it on headphones, and it's got it's got that space in it, that dub space is going on there. Yeah. There's a reason for that right. as well. There's a, there's a reason I found out that none of us knew <laughs> that, that Dennis was t- was what the, and Dennis. This is from Dennis's um, own interview somewhere I read that um, he was moonlighting, and so he was doing the slits in the day, right? And he was going into into London, and he was doing Forces of Victory, yeah, Linton Quizzy Johnson's uh, seminal dub poet album, right? Right, absolutely huge. 
So it had all things like Sonny's letter and, you know, going to smash the brains and... It was a a really powerful album that we played a lot and uh, no idea that these two things were happening back to back. So Dennis was bringing the vibe of of the, you know, the personification of dread poetry, you know, from, from Brixton. Right. And the musicians from Jamaica as well, you know, the musicians and the, the, the rhythm section on that album and the production as well. But it was, t- it was so that the, the flavor of that certainly came in. But the, the rejection of punk looking for something that wasn't what people were terming punk. Right. So it was a hybrid. It was a hybrid between those two things. The Slits didn't have. Uh, um, a history of playing in other bands, of playing cover versions, right? So they getting they, to know other people's songs. They came at it playing their music. They didn't right. and never played anybody else's music. And then if you cross that with a very a, a strong reggae musician who had roots in rock and roll as well, yeah, but uh, who was working on a, a a groundbreaking reggae album with a groundbreaking artist, I think. That combination, perhaps it, you know, that, that maybe the, just the, the home that they found in, in Island Records was very fortunate and made it the way it, you know, the way it was. Wow. So we'll get on now to the cover because the cover is, is somewhat unique and it's probably one of the most uh, well-known covers from a, a band ever, I would think, really, in lots of ways. I'm going to read you the two things from uh, the articles uh, that I've read about the cover. Mm. So this is from Kirkland Chacon, and uh, he tells us about the cover. The cover photograph is famous for showing the band bare-chested, wearing loincloths, their bodies soaked and dried in Surrey mud. But there's nothing, nothing inviting about that shot, for the slits look fearsome. You don't ever see a band look that combative on their CD cover art. Simply put, the slits look like they could kick the shit out of you if you crossed them. Maybe they'd pogo on your spine once you were down for the count. God, I thought they're perfect. And that's that's his viewpoint on it. And then uh, Dennis said, uh, I got a bit of a shock when they did the cover. I went off to have a quick dip in the pool while they were shooting it. When they finished... The owner's son said, why don't you jump in the pool to get the mud off? I said, no, but I jumped in anyway. There's a photo of me in there with them. I've tried to get hold of the negative. I know. Yeah, because you see, really, Dennis was like, you know, at the end of the uh, early evening, he'd always be on the phone to his mum. <laughs> All right, mum. Yeah. yeah, I'll be on for dinner. Right. You know, it was like, it was lovely. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, it kind of, Dennis was larger than life and a joy to be with. And, uh, and you know, we haven't met since that time ever. And I, I hope the day will come when we can say hello again. Yes. Um, but I imagine I could see so much seen with these like three girls covered in mud, no clothes on, just <laughs> jumping in the pool. To, and nothing, nothing suggestive at all because it's just not the way, you know, it's a funny thing, isn't it? They, they, <sighs> Viv was quite, how do you put it? I can't, there's, 
Ariana was like uh, very young and very precocious and very crazy and very Tessa was just cool and nothing really phased her right Viv yeah. Viv, Viv was f- fire you right. know she there was there was there's a lot of uh, more experience there was more life experience yeah. coming through there was was there was the the challenge of being a woman and uh, right and Viv was was the embodiment of everything the slits were were singing about really right I'm going to um I'm going to give you the quote then from uh, you know I have tricks up my sleeve here I'm going to give you the quote from Viv about that shot and she says pretty much what you said the album cover was shot in the rose garden. We wanted a warrior stance to be a tribe. We were egging each other on. The next thing you know, we were sitting in the mud, smearing it over each other. We knew since we had no clothes on that we had to look confrontational and hard. We didn't want to be inviting to the male gaze. And I mean, you know, when you look at the cover, that that's it. They look like a tribe of warriors, you know. That's that's what I, I get from that. It, it, was a, it was a time when reggae artists, soul artists would feature... A, a, a scantily clad woman on the cover. Ah, it was. Right. It was. It, there was that early, you know, that hangover from the seventies and sixties, yeah. which feminine nudity on an album sleeve was something they thought might sell more copies. You know, right? It was taken from a more misogynistic point of view, as opposed to what yeah. the the slits were trying to promote there. Right? They they they, 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 they would have been a, a greater one, especially from Viv. Right of how it could be perceived. Right. And so it, I think she said it really. The photo, photo shoot was with Penny Smith. Okay. We, she, they knew Penny Smith very well. A lot of us knew Penny Smith's work from the NME, right. the Rose Garden. Because the, the, if you see, if you investigate closely, you'll see the drain pipe on the cottage yeah. and the roses climbing the wall, uh, the whitewashed wall. It was a tra- traditional English countryside garden. Right. Surrey Country Garden, right. And so it is that there's nothing around the ambience mm. that says photo studio, uh, guy behind the camera, right. woman put in right. to sell more units. You know that kind of that kind of a photo shoot. This was not. Well, I think it's a very uh, very striking image uh, in in the way that promoted that sort of that punk feminism that was starting to to come up with with people like you know polystyrene. And uh, the slits, and then obviously, we go a little further, and we go to the next person that you encounter. Oh, uh, uh, the, the Madame Banshee. Madame Banshee, yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. There, they, they. That's the, the first time I saw. Not would it be the first time? First time I saw the Banshees in London. I was actually with the slits. Right. Not playing with them, but like hanging out side stage okay so tell me something because uh, uh, i know mm. that i know that our listeners want to know this what did ari and viv think of sue well um i, I well i don't know that ari would have an opinion on anybody okay. i know what she thought of the sex pistols yeah well, <laughs> okay <laughs> and <laughs> they thought steve and steve and paul yeah guitarist and drummer yes. were brickies he said ah they're just they're just bricklayers <laughs> oh dear <laughs> so, so they it wasn't like um they didn't have a high opinion of them no. they were just 
nothing about them would be could you could take that seriously okay they didn't really express they had fun with right. everything okay and how would they see susie i don't know they were aware i think that they were in the same scene right i think they were very aware that susie was a strong woman woman right um i know that if I can be a fly on the wall and see uh, that photo shoot, that's, I think it might have been for the sounds or for the enemy. And it was called like something typical, like, you know, women in punk or something. Where they had Debbie Harry, Chrissy Hines. Oh, yes. Yes, team. I've seen that. Poly, Polystyrene, Pauline Black, yeah. Susie. And I think Pauline Black said, the only thing we have in common is we're all women and we were in bands. Yeah. You know, uh, there was there was no kind of uh, common politic or right. common attitude, right. um, but they were all in it for different reasons, all very personal, um, and and I suppose that's what misses when you have an article like that. You're trying to put them into these are all very strong women in bands. Yeah. It's like you could do the same with guys, but I think guys might have a bit more to talk about in terms of the bands that made them get into bands. I, I can't speak for any, any of the other people in that photograph apart from Susie. Um, but she never wanted to be in a band, any old band. Right. She didn't want to like, I must be a singer in a band. I really got to do that. You know, I want to find the right band for me as might've been, I don't know what Debbie Harry wanted to do. If she, that was a thing or I'm reading Chrissy's book she just seemed to be on the periphery of bands all the time, hanging out with right. bands. I don't, that certainly wasn't the way Susie. Susie was like hanging out with uh, the gay crowd in crazy right. discotheques yeah. in London. Yeah. You know, she was just looking for somebody she could fit in with somehow. Right. And I think the Slits found their gang. You know, I think I'm just thinking was it Palm Oliver's idea to get the band together? So Palm Oliver was already. A fish out of water being from like Paloma in Spain. Mm. Um, and she met Joe Strummer and she was Joe's girlfriend. And so she was with one of the scene changes. Right. And and she was right there on the inside and she was like strong and she was ferocious. Palm Olive was ferocious. Right. Um Viv says in her book, <clears throat> there's a great quote, because the, the, the time of the slits is only a very small section of, of that first book she wrote. Right. But she said it was like such a uh, crushing, you know, when the band split. Right. And she felt like, did she say she felt like, uh, Nikon, a sycamore pod spinning in the oh, breeze? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was like, what do I do now? Many, you know, forward many years when I eventually split from the band yeah. I joined afterwards and when they, they folded. I mean, we were a lot many more years down the line. Mm. But uh, I realized that day after the, the tracks had been done and now, I've, uh, now we're talking through it, I had rehearsed with the slits and we'd started to do demos early on mm -hmm. for what would become cuts. So okay. the first song I did with the Slits was Typical Girls. Right, right. That song was worked out from scratch. It was Viv's lyric. I'm pretty sure of that. Right. And they knew what they had. They had the bass line. And uh, with a couple of different type, different producers they'd been working with, 
we we worked on that particular song like for days of trying out different ways and so we started to work on some of the songs like shoplifting mm. um fm so these could these would have been the songs that we then played live on the clash tour okay because because many years later when i finally touched base with chopper yeah. drummer with the clash right. chopper was saying i said what how great it was watching you topper every night you know right. keeping that massive band sound yeah. together you were like he's i was watching you i know i knew you i knew you were going to say that because i knew he would be because like for me i listened to cut as a drummer and things like typical girls it, it's got such uh there's the genesis to me of of your inimitable style i can hear it right there wow. even before then you know even before uh, before the band she's before everything i can hear it right there and so i, I know what topper means yeah. He was saying you were getting better by the day. <laughs> and as, it was like that thousand hour thing, yeah. you know, the, out, the outlines. Right. Yes. Because I realized when I hit London in, in 1979, I, it, The Slits was my first major label, yeah. but I was in studios pretty much like every day. I was doing something with somebody. But I'd, I'd done a lot of right. intense work. Rehearsal, 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 rehearsal with like Big in Japan and the Spitfires, but mostly with Big in Japan. And when I got to London, I knew about rehearsing and I knew about a little bit about studios. And that's really what I'd done with the slits was walked in and I knew what the job, what what they needed. um, And I knew what I could bring to it whilst keeping this as i said the spirit of palm olive right. and the essence of the band wow. intact so really i suppose you know in the in the the final thought about it is is that that it was a double benefit it was benefit to them because they got a, a excellent percussionist and it was a benefit to you because you got to you know, put your ducks in a row and kind of line up things to know how you should be i'm going i'm going to leave you with one phrase from our good friend Kirkland here <laughs> and, and ask you to comment on it. It's a very poetic way of thinking of things, but, you know. Okay. Uh, he said, some songs, some songs, just like the scenes they spawn from, are cities. Punk was London. Cut is London. And London is better left in the imagination or the chords of a good song. And I kind of see it, that that early, you know, late seventies, early eighties part when I was living in London as well, uh, in that way, you know, it, it it's like a lot of those albums, like the Clash's first album, like Cut and that, they describe a city, but the city is is bigger than its environment as well. It's also all the people like yourself and uh, you know, like us and like me. It, it's all those people that came into the city at that time because it was the nexus of, of creative regeneration. And mm. that that's what really made the place special at that time. I'm not sure if it's like that anymore. I haven't been there for a, for a while, but uh, I definitely felt that feeling then. And, and from, you know, what you've been telling us, it's very much uh, the place where you started to see what your, your, your future could be. I think I, I think that's true. Um, it's. I think it's. It's. If if the, if I had one thing to 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 say to try and say to like to land that the city 
is wrapped up in the, in the chords of the songs that came out of it. It was a London that was, it didn't have a lot of money. It was a bit like what the, the New York you and I met. Right. In, right. in the end yeah. of the 80s, you yeah. know, mid 80s, beginning of the yeah. 80s, mid 80s. But London was the people that were active, like Malcolm McLaren, Vivian Westwood, uh, Neil Stevenson, Banshee's manager, Barbara, who looked after the pistols, yeah. and Linda, who was around. People like Steve Strange were coming into London right. and movers from other parts of Britain. Movers and shakers all coming in. So, yeah, anything was kind of doable. There was a lot of squats. There was a lot of yes, empty buildings. Yes, I remember that. So it, you could yeah. come to London and you could just crash on people's floors or in empty empty uh, flats right. around Euston, yeah. around King's Cross, around Kilburn, Camden. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was a, a network of knowledge of where to get food, where, how to get by, yeah. how to make a bit of money, where to sign on. Yeah. This is like benefits. And then, of course, there were clubs like the Vortex in Wardour Street right. and... Uh, and Andy Sosowski's club, you know, uh, the, the Roxy. Yeah. But these were not just like, well, like local bands went to like the Nashville Rooms right. or, uh, you know, Hope and Anchor, yeah. the pub gigs yeah. that had been traditional. Right. These were new venues that were happening because of what was happening around the country. And people from Birmingham and Liverpool and Manchester, we were gravitating to London. Right. It was one of those kind of moments in, in a city's uh, history where money was scarce and ideas were flowing around. Right. I was going to give you one last thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'd come down to uh, London. My day one rehearsal for the Slits was um, March the 2nd, right. 1979, okay? Uh, but I still had my little bed sit in Liverpool. And I had to pay a month's rent. Uh oh. Guess how much it was? Uh, I'm going to say £10, seven shillings, and sixpence. <laughs> <laughs> That's very, very novel and sweet. But you're not far wrong, you see. A month's rent on my little bed sit in Liverpool on Gambia Terrace opposite the Anglican Cathedral yeah. was £26.40. Oh, pence. my goodness. Like, well, so for, for, you know, for. A that's a pound a day. Yeah. And for our American listeners, we could say that's you're equivalent to paying about forty, fifty dollars a month for for a studio. So that's uh, you know that's that's pretty good. Um, um, it's, well, it, it, it was a studio makes it sound very yeah. grand. It was literally yeah. a room at the back of a house yeah. at the top. It was very Spike Milligan, yeah. a bed sitting room. But um, and I think for the, uh, the for my contribution to the Slits album. Yeah. I was paid the uh, princely sum and a refurbished drum kit in two tranches, £350. Ooh. Ooh. Now, you see, if you do put £350 against a, a monthly rent of £26... Yeah, you were paid pretty well. A lot, a lot better than you'd get from streaming nowadays, I think. <laughs> <laughs> God, my, I had a place above. Yeah. See, no, I couldn't live in Liverpool and do that. Yeah. But it was a magic, magic time. Um, it's lovely to uh, share those memories with 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 your good self. Yeah, I think our um, our listeners will will appreciate all of that. That was, it was very interesting for me as well. I, I learned more about it all. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer Joe Wong. 
Producer and audio designer Dan Didier. Executive producer Mark Cates. Associate producer Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing Margie Taylor. Art and logo design Justin Thomas K. Music production Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.